This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone. Easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends. And then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefan Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we are so excited because we get to have a true friend of the show. Like, I've already claimed her as one of my best friends. I said this a while ago. Margaret Killjoy to the show. Yay! Yay. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I try to do, like, songs and such, and people don't like it, but I still do what? it. It's okay. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I so you just said that people don't like it, so then I got self-conscious. But, like, you're actually a musician, so I feel like this is uh, better coming from you. But yes, we do have the wonderful Margaret Kiljoy on our show. Uh, can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Margaret Kiljoy. I use she or they pronouns, and I am a podcaster and an author and I guess the aforementioned musician. I have another iHeartRadio podcast called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, where you might have heard Samantha talking in a, back in the utopian past before the fall of Roe v. Wade about what might happen after the fall of Roe v. Wade. Yes. It was one of those that we had to come back very quickly to be like, all right, <laughs> we have to redo some things. Yeah. <laughs> and we knew it going into it. We were like, this we is, might sound utopian and outdated by the time you hear it. And it was. <sighs> it was. But I loved what you had brought because it was such a hopeful turn. And even though it was really sad to come back to revisit it, but at the same time, I was like, at least there's a spotlight, like a nice light at the end of that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there is a lot of hope to accidentally dive into that. There's a lot of hope for what people can do even when things aren't strictly legal. Um, there's, And we have a lot 
we've come a long way in terms of like what we can do in a post Roe v. Wade world than what we had access to in a pre Roe v. Wade world. So. Right. Um, and for the listeners who may not know, because I've mentioned it before, but yes, I got to be a guest uh, with Margaret when we talked about the Jane Collective and the many people mm-hmm. uh, behind, I guess, the rebelliousness of going against the anti-abortion people um, and what it looked like before abortion was legal at that time, which we were back to square one. But it was some amazing stories and I learned a lot. So if you haven't checked that out, you really should go and check it out. But we're not necessarily here talking about that. No, we're talking about the many. Yeah, you have so many titles under <laughs> your belt, Margaret. When I look you up on the interwebs, which you're everywhere, you're everywhere. I'm like, oh my God, she's so famous. What the hell? <laughs> uh, but it has so many titles between the writer, musician, ar- uh, anarchist, activist, mm-hmm. podcaster. You are out there uh, doing some things. And right now, you're actually not near your home, correct? That's true. I'm uh, on book tour. Well, I'm on pre-book tour. I decided to start my book tour on the West Coast. I live on the East Coast, so I drove out to the West Coast and in a couple weeks, I don't know when this will drop, but I will be on book tour starting September 20th talking about my new short story collection book. Ooh, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, I have a book out coming out called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow and Other Stories that comes out from AK Press. And it's a collection of... Well, I've been writing short fiction for a long time, and I've been writing it at, I guess I would say, a professional level for a little while now. And so this is my first collection of the stories that have been published in various magazines and science fiction anthologies and things like that. And also some stories that were previously only available to, I used to have a personal Patreon, and I had stories that were only available to my patrons. Um, But now they will be available to everyone. And I write a lot of queer, punk radical protagonists who run around and feed men to mermaids and squat buildings and uh, try to stop bad things and and all of that live in the apocalypse. I don't know. Um, And so, yeah, so that comes out soon. (laughs) That sounds great. Future book club pick. <laughs> I know. So we do book clubs. So now we're going to oh, have wow. to bring your books. Into, and I know you also did um, horror as well. Am mm-hmm. I wrong? Did I just pick that up somewhere? Because we, we're a huge fan and it's coming to the season. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's funny because I, I um, it's kind of by accident that I, I started writing horror. Uh, because I basically, I was like, I wrote these novellas. I have this series of two novellas, the Danielle Kane series. And basically I was like, oh, okay, I'll I'll do this thing set in basically now, but there'll be demons or magic, you know? And then I'm like, oh, and if there's magic, it's it's horror. Because, you know, it, most of the time, or I think urban fantasy often way too much is like, and then the elevators are just run by magic instead of, you know, uh, electricity or whatever. And that's not very interesting. I think magic has a lot to do with power. And I think that when you introduce uh, incredibly skewed power dynamics into the real world, you end up with things that are horrific. And so I, I didn't set out to write. The first book is called The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, which I suppose does sound like a title of a horror thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I actually just set it out to be like kind of adventure. And then I was like, and the publisher was like, this is this is horror. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. I'm very um, squeamish. So, and, uh, you know, I, I used to live alone in a, a van and then before that, and then after that, I lived alone in a cabin in the woods and all of this stuff. So I avoided horror for a very long time because um, <laughs> it it didn't fit my lifestyle. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And so, but I can read it and I can write it. Although I have also given myself nightmares with my own 
writing before. Oh, that's a testament right there. If you can give yourself nightmares <laughs> with your writing in a good way, then you know you're doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations, because writing a book is no no small thing. <sighs> yeah, it's hard. that's true. Yeah, thank it's you. Hard. I appreciate it. And you've you. done it multiple times. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes they get slightly longer than the other ones. Um, actually, the longest books I've ever written, I can't, I'm legally not allowed to say that I wrote because they're romance novels I ghost wrote. Um, oh. For a while, I made my living uh, ghost writing trashy heterosexual romance novels. Um, and it was like right after I came out, they were like, can you write this male protagonist stuff? That is fascinating. I know. At first I was like, it's kind of annoying. I just came out. But then I was like, <laughs> well, it kind of makes sense because male protagonist romance novels are still written for a, a woman audience. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, I think I can straddle this divide better than some yes. other people. Yeah, absolutely. You, It's very obvious. And we've talked about this before and we're going off mm-hmm. subject, but I, before we <laughs> go back to the subject, but how oftentimes when you see romance and it has specific language, you're like, this is definitely a woman who wrote this or someone mm-hmm. who are, understands that gender level of this is a male gaze, this is a female gaze, especially when it comes to heteronormative conversations, there's very big differences. And so it seems very obvious, like someone understands. Someone yeah. really understands what we're talking about here. And it's not yeah. your cis male dude doing yes. this. Yeah, which is why I think that the like the Nicholas Sparkses of the world and stuff are so successful is because if you if you kind of figure out how to do that while still being like a man or presenting as a man, or I don't know anything about Nicholas Sparks as a person, <laughs> you know, um I don't know whether he's ghost written or not. Um I have my suspicions, but... Controversy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, if you can, if you can tap into that, it's a, it's a powerful mark. I mean, that's why I got hired to ghost, right? I didn't ghostwrite Nicholas Sparks. I can't, that is not. <laughs> I was going to say, is this a confession the truth between no, the no, lines? This is not what I'm saying. <laughs> you heard it here first, y'all. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, coming back to what we're talking about. And honestly, mm-hmm. this kind of all links because mm-hmm. this is kind of how we look at uh, different entertainment that seems just so blasé. And we've talked about romance and how it does, uh, how it is affected by uh, gender stereotypes or those who mm-hmm. have a bias, what is placed by misogyny, like our understanding of romance is laid down by a foundation of misogynistic ideals yeah. based by the patriarchy. Like, this is about the power. And I know, again, people are going to be like, you're reaching. But we talked about how this really does affect uh, the society at large. And this is kind of your forte. You've come under this conversation. You have identified as a feminist for mm-hmm. a long time now. Um, I believe before you came out, you were already, yeah, the feminism yep. is real, is effective. Can you kind of talk about your journey yeah. with feminism? Okay, but can I tangent to talk about romance a little bit more please, really quick? Yes, And I'll tie it back please. together. Okay. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're talking about the, the tropes and the stereotypes that, that bleed into it, um, since I wrote for someone else, they told me these rules. Yeah. And so Ooh. I can, and I don't know whether they're like secret or not. I mean, I can, I know they're not in my NDA. I know I can say them. Um, but uh, one, the protagonist has to be over six feet tall. Mm. Oh. I was told to write an average size professional football player. So he, he was five foot 10. And they were like, uh, no, he has to be at least six feet tall. Um, he has to be uh, dominant in every sexual situation. And he also, um, 
which was awkward in one of the ones I wrote because he was injured, which actually <laughs> was kind of fun to write. Did he cause himself more injury because he had to be dominant no matter the cost? <laughs> well, I, I don't know the age of your all as usual audience, but he, he managed to um, become dominant uh, verbally. Ah, and so physically. But uh, (laughs) there were just like so many of these weird rules and like, and some of them actually really annoyed me, right? Because, you know, I wrote, um, you know, in one of these books, he's he's dating um, a mom, right? And I, I wrote that he was like into her stretch marks. And they were like, no, 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 she doesn't have stretch marks. And I'm like, who's your audience? Right. I thought the point of this was to make these like middle-aged moms feel really good. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and so so that got edited out, and there's all of these things like that, and then it gets into like real specific stuff around like the way that you describe like the bad woman is the following sexual acts, and the good woman is the following. It got it's it's real. Wow, it's real head wow. around. It's, it's in some ways I feel dirtier about having written that than like anything else I've done. Um, but I, I needed the money, um, <laughs> and I like yeah. tried my hardest to make them passably feminist and and passably. <laughs> You know, like, um, right. like write in. I, th- there were like weren't gay characters in the outlines they give me, and I'd be like, whatever, he can have a gay best friend. I don't care, you know. And then I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, I'm at the point where I'm like, oh, a gay best friend, that's edgy of me. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I think I understand '90s writers better now, you know. Right. Um, this is the best that they were like allowed to do. Right. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
Okay, your question was about my journey into... Yes. Yeah, Feminism. sorry. Um, I, just, I was really excited because I don't get to talk about romance novels much. Sorry. Um, we can do a whole section on that because, like I said, we've did. I think we did a two-parter because we were okay, so like caught up in oh, that. But I want to go going. back and listen to that because um, I might have also just told you all things that you already know. No, um, that was new. No, you went to a whole different. We went down a whole different route. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes I think about trying to write some really intentionally now, uh, but life is very short. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I I grew up being told I was a boy, right? And I I, I have these like early memories of I wish I was a girl. But all of the early presentations I saw, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and all of the early presentations of trans women I saw were very monstrous, right? Um, they were the the butt of jokes, or they were to be pitied, or they were like they had destroyed themselves, or, you know, and I just, I have these very early memories of being like, I wish I was a girl, but I, I cannot become a girl. I cannot become a trans woman that is not, is better to be a boy than to be one of these uh, pitiable creatures. and. You know, and I, I held on to that for a very long time. And it was very confusing, right? Because I kept um, dating gay girls and we would all be confused. You know, we'd be like, mm-hmm. why am I attracted to you? And be like, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I honestly couldn't tell you. And, <laughs> you know, and it, it's kind of this like thing. I've talked to other uh, trans women and other trans folks about this, uh, where like kind of like on some subconscious level, people know this when they even don't know this. You know, and it's not just about like who I would date or whatever. Although it'd also be you go the other way, and I date very confused straight girls who are like, "What? This doesn't work, right?" And but I got and I also got really into LGBT stuff uh, as my like first politics. You know, I joined the the Gay Straight Alliance uh, of Maryland when I when I grew up, and and actually one thing I think that people don't realize is that the Gay Straight Alliances of the '90s, the reason they were Gay Straight Alliances was plausible deniability. Because if you don't want to come out, you can still, uh, you know, join organizations. And the way that we started our Gay Straight Alliance in my school was really funny. I had these two, there were these two teachers who in retrospect were very obviously lesbians, um, not dating each other. But, you know, one of them had a hyphenated last name and one of them was the super butch gym teacher. And they just kind of cornered me in the hallway one day before school started. And they were like, did you know that teachers aren't allowed to start student groups? And I was like, huh. And they were like, here's a clipboard with a form that's already filled out to start a gay-straight alliance. Do you want to start a gay-straight alliance? And I was like, I do. I do want to start a gay-straight alliance. Um, because they knew that I was involved in regional gay-straight alliance politics. And and no one was out in our gay-straight alliance. And in retrospect, we were all uh, almost all queer and the, the random straight guys very actively politically engaged um, in leftist politics now. Um, so, so yeah, I kind of, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm really interested in feminism. My oldest sister is a very active feminist who, uh, currently does clinic escorting. Um, and, uh, you know, is kind of my hero around a lot of that stuff still. And so it was just always something I was interested in. And, and I always has this very ally position, even on some level, I was like, well, what is what's going on here? Like, why, why do all I care about is like women's issues and gay issues, you know? And then slowly the, the, the category of what counts as trans started to expand um, in that uh, people who don't necessarily medically transition or if they do like, quote, medically transition, it's, you know, not to necessarily the same degree. It's like, it's no longer like you become a woman when you like undergo surgery, right? You know, um, I rarely see people talk about being like, oh, I'm pre-op, 
M to F or whatever. That is terminology that I'm not trying to shame anyone who uses any terminology. I don't care. But it is like terminology that um, no longer seems to be the dominant discourse around it. And, you know, and, and the more I came to understand this, this work that, um, that feminism, feminism has done for a very long time to draw the distinction between sex and gender and use that to understand both sex and gender-based oppression, that lens allowed people to, to kind of realize that, I mean, basically, if I am a trans woman, I'm a trans woman already, um, rather than like waiting to become a trans woman. Um, and I don't uh, personally experience much in the way of, of body dysphoria, dysmorphia. And so I don't have a strong desire to, to quote unquote, like medically transition or surgically transition or whatever language, you know, people want to use. But I have a very strong desire to socially transition. And so when that became available to me, when that was included under the umbrella of trans, it's like the umbrella of trans expanded to include me. Uh, for a while, I identified as like a transvestite, um, you know, which is not a word that people tend to use right now. But I was like, oh, I'm just a cross-dresser, you know? And it's like, all of this when I'm like, oh, I was a cis boy. I was like a cis boy where I took the name Margaret and published books under the name Margaret and like wore women's clothing almost exclusively. Um, but but yeah, it, it kind of expanded to include me. And I think that there's a lot of uh, people who that happened to. And then the other really big important thing is that it stopped being perceived as monstrous by um, a large chunk of society. <laughs> now things have swung back the other way. and. Um, you know, I feel a little bit like I'm waiting in my castle for the pitchforks and torches to show up outside these days, um, especially living rural like I do. But, you know, I don't know. That's how I, you know, and it's, and it, it leaves me in this funny situation where I like, do I look back and perceive my childhood as a girlhood, you know, or do I see, perceive it, perceive it as a boyhood or do I just perceive it as a childhood? And, and the ways I feel about that change different times, it, it helps that you know, um, sometimes I like by the end of high school, like my closest group of friends was just like the girls and it was like the girls and then me, I'm here, <laughs> you know, and I wasn't dating any of them and we'd sit around and paint our nails and like skip gym class to sit in the corner and talk about goth bands or whatever, you know, and I'm still friends with some of those people. One of my best friends is still from that time. And it was one of the people who really encouraged me to come out. I remember I was like 30 and I was like, oh, it's too late. And someone I'd known since I was like 13 was like, why is it too late? And I'm like, I don't know, because no one would believe me. And she's like, does that matter? And I'm like, I guess it doesn't, you know? And and now I'm kind of rambling, um, but some people will believe me and some people won't. And, you know, it's like, I don't pass, right? Uh, but I don't try to. Um, it's possible that if I transitioned when I was younger, I would have put more work into that. But as it is, and then and then that's the the... The beautiful, the horrible thing, right, is you realize it's like no one passes for under cis feminine standards. You know, it's like um, cis feminine beauty standards hurt everybody, and so so now it's just like, well, you know, I I, I walk through the world and people perceive me largely as a man in a dress, um, and that's fine. I mean, it's it's fine when it's fine. It's not fine when it's not fine. But it, fortunately, I'm also um, uh, <laughs> a scary punk. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for the most part, people don't mess with me. A lot of people say things behind my back, but not to my face because I also often walk around with a very large knife. 
Um, <laughs> that'll do it. So <laughs> that'll do it. I like it. I think that's the lesson to be told. Carry a knife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, where it's legal, uh, <laughs> it is a useful visual indicator of like. <laughs> Hey, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. <laughs> like, Let's not start. Yeah. Um, I love that. I love that conversation about being on a spectrum. I think we talk about that mm-hmm. a lot on the show when it comes to gender. It's not binary. It is It is a spectrum and it is fluid mm-hmm. and it should be. It doesn't make sense that it's not. Um, and the idea that it has to be in order to fit a standard it's absurd. It yeah. is. Um, when you really kind of come down on it, same thing with uh, love and relationships um, yeah. and understanding that this is a, it's fluid and why wouldn't it be? If it's emotion, if it's uh, not gender, but necessarily, but like mm-hmm. about feelings and who you love and who you, why wouldn't it be the person that you connect to? That makes the most sense because at the very least, it's honest. And then the very most, it's happiness. And that's something that we should strive for in individual individual lives and just for happiness. Again, yeah, it has nothing to do with everybody else. It has everything to do with who you are and coming out uh, to, whether it's with your gender, whatever it is, or mm-hmm. coming out and being independent in your political stance. Like, yeah. that's a, even a big conversation. Um, understanding that it's for you and that at any point in time, Things change, circumstances change, events yeah. change, and whatever that might be, it doesn't affect anyone else. So why should you yeah. be bothered by it? That's such a bigger conversation. And again, yeah, this goes back to what we were talking about with romance novels. This is like this layout that's existed for years and years and years, and it's not really helpful. Yeah. And though people have accepted it, there's no reason to remain in that yeah. habit. I love because when you talk about what you are going through and your uh, coming out and even what that looks like for you uh, coming out as trans, but not only that, realizing the inner person of who you are has always been there. So whether it's your political stance, whether it's understanding feminism, whether it's calling yourself an anarchist, which Mm -hmm. I want to come back to because I still need an understanding of that for myself who understands the binary liberal and conservative. Like that's what I know because my parents throw it in my face often. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. But all this is a platform for you. Like this, the reasons that you are writing books, the reason that you are in a band, the reason that you are in a podcast kind of has everything to do with these foundations. Yes? <laughs> that yes. was a question that I didn't reference as a question. And can you kind of expound <laughs> upon that? Yeah. Um, when I was younger and I was like, I want to do art. And I was like, what kind of art? And I was like, I don't know. And I was like, are you any good at any of it? No. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, and I, I, I tried, I was like, I'm going to learn how to paint. And I'm, I'm I'm okay painting, but no one's gonna. Uh, that's not my career path, and <laughs> you know, and and writing more than anything else, writing fiction was was something I was more interested. in. I also, when I was younger, used to write poetry, and I aspire to become good enough to go back to writing poetry. But I um I don't write much of it right now. But and so I started kind of yeah, I like started doing all of these things and slowly expanding the list of things that I do. The number of plates I have spinning, unfortunately. And usually what I do is if I have something I want to say, I think about what the best medium to say that is and then go out and try and say it in that way. You know, there's certain things, certain ideas that come across in different ways better. And for example, I think that music is a really good way to put someone in an emotional space uh, or put yourself in an emotional space. Uh, It's not a particularly good way to be pedantic. It's not a very good way to teach someone something. It's not a very good way to... Um, express complex political ideas or uh, interpersonal ideas. However, 
it's not terrible at those things. I think that Riot Girl has shown us and anarcho-punk and and, uh, and hip-hop and a lot of different uh, very direct forms of communication have come through from music, right? But but overall, I, I tend to use it when I have something sort of more emotional to say. Um, and then if I have something cult cultural to say, I often write it in fiction about like, how can people interact with each other, right? Because a lot of my political ideas, they're a little bit less about like, and here's how the legislative branch, or in my case, it would be like, here's how the anarchist federation, you know, disseminates goods across the different collectives that control the worker-owned cooperatives of, you know, these areas or whatever, right? Um, which would be like the political or economic structure of anarchism, uh, as is sort of understood in a 20th century at least context. But I'm much more interested in, for me, to, to use anarchism as the example, because uh, it's what I'm more familiar with, ways of relating to each other, ways of creating cultures of consent and consensus is what's interesting to me. So I like writing characters interacting with each other more than I like writing nonfiction. Because if I was writing nonfiction, it would just be like, we should um, be consensual in our relationships with each other. You know, and it's much easier to just like uh, <laughs> draw that, right? And and you can t and then you can get into the fun stuff, like like what does a romance novel look like in a you know culture of consent, where like even if it's a monogamous relationship, it's monogamous in the context of polyamory as available to these characters, but they choose monogamy. What does that look like? What does it look like to consent to that? You know, um, and in this case, I'm actually literally quoting Ursula Le Guin is my probably my like main role model of an author and actually wrote specifically about that in this book called The Dispossessed about like you know these characters who uh could absolutely it's even the norm to be polyamorous they choose to be committed to each other and it it creates this type of romance that you're not going to run across even though it's a monogamous relationship you it does it doesn't look like what the monogamous relationships we get presented with are so that's why I like writing fiction and then with podcasts you know, I mean, it was different. I have, I have one podcast called Live Like the World is Dying, which is a preparedness podcast. And and my stated goal here is to take preparedness culture away from the right wing. Uh, because this individualistic, everyone hide in their bunker and stockpile ammo and food thing is, is nonsensical. It'll get everyone killed. It won't stop the crises of the world. And it won't even help those individuals live very long. Um, because unless all of them are surgeons and have another one around, they're not going to be able to do anything when their appendix bursts. And what I want to be able to communicate to people is that society is what creates safety. Uh, and society is what um, allows us to live full and happy and free lives, right? Because freedom, as I understand it, is not something that exists in a vacuum. Freedom is a relationship between people. Freedom is something that we give one another. Uh, and so to be totally alone, I'm not free because I can't do everything I want to do. Uh, all I can do is try not to die if, if I'm just totally alone. The only way in which freedom becomes a liberty is if you're rich as hell, because then you can hire everyone to do everything for you. So you're still not actually alone doing things. You're just making all the decisions yourself. Anyway, okay, so that's so if I want to get across that idea, apparently what I do is come onto your podcast and say it. But, <laughs> but in general, what I do is, you know, I, I run this podcast where I interview people about compost or I interview people about, you know, uh, community gardens or, you know, activist modes that are working for them or, or whatever. And then the other one that I do is called Cool People Did Cool Stuff. And it's how I try to uh, show people that we can have agency and that we can, 
you know, because we keep getting told by society that we don't have agency, that we can't do what we want. We have to appeal to other people in power to get things done. And, and that is my work um, at, as an anarchist, I believe in responsibility and freedom as the two sort of core concepts. And so my work is to try to help people understand we can have agency. And here are all these people in the past who have taken agency over bad situations. And they don't always win, right? Um, unfortunately, they often don't win. But, but winning and losing is a really weird concept when we're mortal. Because, like, I don't know, the difference between dying trying to make things better or dying in a world that didn't make things better I'm still dying, you know, <laughs> like, like we can't have dying be a, a, a massive negative in our lives because uh, we're stuck with it, you know, um, that's going to happen. And, and so I, I just, I want to, so if I want to try and get across this concept of agency, that is the other uh, format I use for it. And I, I don't know, I just love all of the different way all of these different formats work. And I don't do all of them, right? There's so many good ideas that are just not, you know, I, I probably won't write a like. I do write nonfiction, actually. Now that I say that, <laughs> um, I like as soon as I start saying that, I'm like, no, but I want to do everything. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say you do a lot of things. Though. Yeah, I get really sad. I was watching, I was rewatching The Hobbit, which I like more than almost anyone I know, and. <laughs> Yeah, And I was just like thinking about the elves being like, man, if I was an elf, I'd be like, for 20 years, I'm just going to be a blacksmith. I'm just going to make swords for 10, 20 years. Oh, okay, that's done. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to write poetry for 20 years. Or like, now I'm going to go and like do childcare for my friends for 20 years. You know, I'll just specialize mm, in all these different things. Anyway, that's a, okay, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I get it. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag-A-Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Samantha's already mentioned it and you've alluded to it a lot. Uh, Can you explain what being an anarchist is and uh, what you think that has to do with feminism? Sure. Um, So I understand anarchism as two separate things that are related. And one is a sort of ideological movement that came out of European socialism. Um, And it it actually predates Marxism and a lot of the other very specific isms within socialism. Uh, It was basically people who were like, well, the state and capitalism are bad. They are both oppressive forces and we should do without them and we should do things as communities. And then the sort of arg- the like subsects that come up within that ideological position that was originally kind of mid-19th century, 18, uh, 1840s or so, there's like mutualist anarchism, which still uses markets and banks, but they're like people's banks and there's no ability to maintain capital and wield it against other people uh, versus like a communalist or a communist anarchism, which are not the same, but are like much more what people imagine of like leftism, where we all like kind of get together and share. Um, And it was positioned within the sort of ideological framework of socialism, which is the general overall capitalists shouldn't run everything and overall like society should run things instead, right? Like the, who owns the means of production is the big thing. Like who owns the factories? Is it the people who own the factories? Is it the workers who own the factories, et cetera? Um, And so that is the anarchist sort of tradition that I come from. Uh, And anarchists have, are kind of the most, I would, I would claim probably the most misunderstood of these different positions because Originally, we kind of had this uh, this stereotype of we're the people who like throw bombs and kill kings. Um, I am not embarrassed of the fact that we used to kill kings. Someone says that they're in charge of everyone else, and someone says, "No, you're not." Um, that's okay by me, right? But you know that if that is people have this perception of anarchists as only the people who are trying to destroy the existent rather than create a society based on equality, uh, based on non-hierarchy, and so. The, the largest example of an anarchist society that is the most that we have the most information about at least as a consciously anarchist society was during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s uh, when anarchists were the majority I believe of the labor movement in Spain and so when this war broke out when Franco invaded and tried to declare fascism within um, and had tried to do a coup basically anarchists were, on the front lines and prevented that from happening. And then in that lack of the Republic having state power, the anarchists started running everything. And they had a lot of organizations in place. This is the other misconception that people have about anarchism. So anarchism is not anti-organization. Anarchism is purely anti-authoritarian organization where someone tells you what to do in a way that you don't have a say over. Um, And they still create structures that, that 
but they're bottom-up structures instead of top-down structures. So a lot of anarchists talk about federations. And so uh, goods can still be transported everywhere and, and you know, uh, things can be made and things can be done and society can function, um, I believe, uh, within this type of framework. Um, and one of the other main distinctions of it is that anarchists don't tend to separate the means from the ends. So they So theoretically a state communist or a communist, a Marxist communist, a Marxist-Leninist, etc., believe in the creation of communism, which is a society without a state. But they create a state or take the state in order to do that. Uh, anarchists believe that the means and the ends are inseparable. And this is where it ties into feminism for me. Well, one, anarchist feminism has been a, a large part of the feminist movement uh, throughout history, and feminism has been a large part of the anarchist movement. But this idea that the means and the ends are inseparable, uh, you know, the idea of like, our goal is to give more people more agency over their own lives. Our goal is to teach consent and teach ways of relating to each other as equals. Um, whether or not even like we win and we get an anarchist society, our goal is to infuse our interpersonal relationships with this sense of equality uh, and agency. And so... And and so direct action is often a major focus of anarchism. And so, uh, and actually, a thing that came up in my research, uh, I researched the Jane Collective, who are amazing, and they mostly come from a socialist position. And that allowed them to think, we don't care about legality, we're going to get this done. And, you know, Jane Collective, I, I presume most people are aware, but is a was an underground abortion provider in Chicago that did an amazing work. I, I later discovered that, uh, anarchists in Germany in the 1920s and 30s ran 300 different illegal abortion providers um, all across Germany. And they didn't do it in the name of anarchism. It's just that this feminist movement that was providing abortion came out of the anarchist organizing tradition. Um, and because they had that we're good at illegal stuff. We care about agency. We care about all of these things. They set up 300 clinics. I'm going to have my numbers fuzzy when I say this stuff. I don't have my notes in front of me. Please don't quote me directly. Well, you all. But I mean, like anyone listening at home, <laughs> you know, don't be like exactly 300, you know. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I, I read that and I was just so excited and I want to know more about that, you know. And I only know the like Cliff's Nose versions because... Uh, well, because there's a lot of really old books that I have to read in order, I can, in order to really understand it. <laughs> yeah, so and so that's what it is for me. Uh, you know, there's it, it's a thing that means a lot of different things to different people. Oh, but at the very beginning, I said it's two things. And one, it's this specific ideological tradition. And then two, it's its own concept, which has existed long before it's had a name. Um, and there's a lot of people doing work, especially from non-European backgrounds, about anarchic um, organizing that has very similar like means and ends, but doesn't come from, well, this old dead white guy with a beard said this, and instead are like our traditions that are coming from North America or our traditions that are coming from, you know, West Africa or whatever, like tie in very well to this and this is how we see things, you know. Yeah. That's I don't know if that was a good one oh one or not, but no. that's that's where I'm coming from politically. That was very good. I love that. Because, yeah, I don't, like I said, the history is very uh, fuzzy for me. Because, like yeah. I said, I grew up in North Georgia where everything's very binary anyway. And when it yeah. comes to politics, either you're with us or you aren't kind yeah. of conversations. And having this level of like, oh, anarchist has always been not 
a bad word necessarily, but mm-hmm. not necessarily a good one either. Totally. So it's kind of like it's it's you know it's with the foreigners. You just you, you got to put it out there. This, <laughs> it's not it's not part of the U.S. culture and especially mountain culture. Mm-hmm. That's from me. Uh, but like that's a lot of like learning lessons of like okay, this is exactly where I am in my standpoint. I didn't know what it was necessarily. Cool. Not necessarily like yeah. bombing kings. I'm not talking about that. Yeah, yeah. But in general, just like uh, finding out what it is to be autonomous and understanding that as a group, we do things better. The societal aspect of everything. And of course, you know, we're not going to talk about communism and how that does lie within the patriarchal uh, ideals. Right. But <laughs> what, like what I'm talking about in... In understanding, I became a social worker because mm-hmm. I wanted to work for the collective. I wanted to one be one who did a macro practice mm-hmm. over a micro ideal. Uh, and that's a big debate within social work. When I was in social work, I don't know if it's changed because it's been a minute since I've been mm-hmm. in school. But that was a big debate about the macro and micro of hmm. helping a community and society. And what does that look like? And what did social work begin to be? It came out of uh. a macro practice in hel- helping communities. Mm-hmm. That's where it came to. And then it got you know, dissected into, well, I'll be a therapist, which is not a bad thing. Please right. understand, I believe that helps as well a community when it's done correctly. <laughs> um, but yeah, this like understanding of like, oh, okay, I've been practicing this. This makes sense. Oh, okay. When we talk about feminism, especially when we talk about intersectional feminism, mm-hmm. which is where we are today, and it's shifted uh, a lot uh, yeah. when we talk about feminism. Feminism from the origins of the word to today has shifted uh, greatly in a good way, yeah. I hope, um, as we are, you're right, we're, we have tracked backwards as now we can at least differentiate those who are bad bad players mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to feminism, such as TERFs, uh, such, yeah. such as the Rawlings uh, fan base that sticks with her, um, yeah. with her stupidity. I like that. I like that. <laughs> but I think there's a whole level of conversation when we talk about politics and uh, understanding our platforms and growing together. And what does feminism look like? And we had to revisit that often. Um, Annie and I, honestly, probably every year or so, come back and have a conversation of, okay, this is the things that we've learned. This is what hmm. we can see in society. Mm-hmm. This is what we know that is changing vastly. Like the Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Massage Noir, you know you have to revamp that conversation about uh, feminism. And I think as we are going back to seeing the negativity towards the queer uh, community, the negativity towards the trans community, we have to come back and revisit this conversation. What does feminism look like today? So yeah. in your opinion, and this is a mm-hmm. big question, and I'm sorry for this, no. this is how I do. Do you think when you came out, your perspective of feminism uh, changed uh, in a positive, negative manner? A, that's part one. Mm-hmm. B, what do you see uh, as a positive in feminism today and as a negative in feminism today? Yeah. So I'm going to answer the second part first, I think. I think that intersectionality is the main beautiful thing that is happening to feminism. Uh, You know, and having people understand the way that, well, just literally how intersections work and how the the issues that affect rich white women are very different than the issues that affect rich black women that are very different from the issues that affect, you know, poor people of color. And, and, And it allows us to hopefully be better to one another and to understand that, like, instead of this, like, that we're all fighting in solidarity with each other rather than as a united mass, right? Because we are all coming into feminism 
with our own needs and our own uh, priorities. Um, but we can stand together because we understand what we do have in common and what we don't and how we can, you know, and how I can assume that, well, like, okay, for example, Roe v. Wade affects me, but it does not affect me bodily, right? Um, I mean, if it destroys the right to privacy and it gets used to prevent people from medically transitioning, yes. But, like, I, I, I'm not having an abortion anytime soon unless medical, you know, unless medical technology advances. Uh, and there's always that joke about, like, wanting to be the first trans woman to get an abortion. <laughs> you know, just to, to piss off everyone. But, <laughs> and while abortion is more than a woman's issue because it affects people who are not women bodily, you know, it affects... Uh, trans people, certain intersex people, certain non-binary people, you know, it, it affects a lot of people, right, who are not women. It also is gender-based discrimination. And that gender-based discrimination looks real similar to the people who are telling me what I can do with my body. And even if it wasn't, something that affects most women affects me, right? And so being able to say, like, this matters to me and, like, I don't know. It's just like finding these points of solidarity. I think that this is like what intersectionality is is really good for. I think that especially now, and I think this is a newer addition, we're starting to see class introduced to it into this intersectionality as well. And I think that that's vital. Um, I think one of the problems of the old left is they reduced everything to class, right? But but one of the problems with the sort of uh, essentially liberal feminism, is that it cuts class out of intersectionality sometimes. Um, I don't actually believe the average person who identifies as a liberal does, but the sort of like... The agenda? Yeah, the, the larger... You know, there's such a difference between like liberal politicians and liberals, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, right. And so I think that the introduction of class is very important because it's all related to power. It all comes back to power as far as I'm concerned. And... Class is a very strong indicator of power, but so is race, so is ethnicity, so is gender, so is sexual orientation. So there's there so many other things that also relate to, to power. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. 
Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In terms of what I think feminism, where feminism is like misstepped or the things that are going badly, fortunately, I think the U.S. has like largely avoided this. Uh, because, well, because the right wing has a monopoly on hating trans people in the United States, you know, it become, it became a culture war thing to not allow anyone to be non-binary, not allow anyone to be trans or whatever within the United States, um, along right left lines. So by and large, I don't run across feminists who are like, they, them, that's awful or whatever, you know, or like, you're not a real woman. You're a, you know, man and drag or whatever. I'm like, I, I honestly don't care, whatever. I, I'm, I'm actually me. My, my pronouns are I, um, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but in terms of how society views me, like I'm finding the best possible, the most useful description to provide for other people, you know, but it is a problem, I think, with feminism internationally and specifically in the UK right now. Uh, and it, it could creep in, in the United States. And so I, I really, um, I feel like I, I try to, you know, I think, well, kind of have to, but we all try to kind of like keep that from creeping in is, is, is the turf thing is the idea that feminism excludes trans people, which is just historically myopic, you know, uh, all of these things have all been related. Even if you look at the history of understanding homosexuality, you know, transness was not a distinct category for a very long time. Um, of course, the people who started to distinguish it were, uh, some Germans who then the Nazis came and burned all their books and killed the first woman to medically transition. The the famous book burning photos, whenever you see that famous yeah. photo of Nazis burning books, it was the Institute for Sexual... Ah, I don't have it off the top of my head. It's Hirschfeld's Institute where he studied um, homosexuality and transness and you know, was one of the first medical practitioners to say like, hey, if you allow trans people to live as their chosen identity, everything is better and they are medically healthier, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know why I'm rambling about that. But so... So I guess I would say that's like the advantages and disadvantages. I think feminism is mostly just doing well and has it, it, it has more it needs to do. It has more, especially I think continuing, especially along race lines. Um, there's like way more that feminism needs to do. Uh, but what was the first of the two questions? I was asking that since you transitioned came out, mm. has anything changed in your perspective of feminism? Yeah, it took me a really long time to feel comfortable eyeing myself in conversations about feminism. Uh, I spent a very long time and put a lot of work into being like an ally, right? Like I used to write um, zines and stuff that were like feminism for men. 
you know, um, and and not taking up conversational space was very important to me. And so I like very much, all of my attention was focused outward towards like non-feminism or towards, uh, particular towards men to be like, hey, here's ways to to be more feminist. And so, you know, there's like this outsider syndrome, right, that I have around it. And I actually really appreciate uh, the work that folks like you do. I mean, even like inviting me here on this, you know, and um, and the degree to which like, so many, uh, you know, cis women and AFAB people in general have this this work they've done to be like, no, what are you talking about? Like, no, it's it's actually totally fine, you know. And I, I remember the first time I was invited to like an, an all women's full moon circle, you know, and and they were just like, hey, we're and and I was kind of their test case, right? They had like they had actually <laughs> and actually I really respect them for this. They had just split. They were a all cis women like, you know, full moon, like ritual collective, right? And they they had this hypothetical conversation about whether or not they should include trans women. And it got so heated that it split into two groups. And I, I really appreciate the people who were like, this is so important to me that even though it's a hypothetical, we will like stand our ground around this. You know, and, and I felt a little bit like recruited where they were like, ah, like come join us, <laughs> you know? Oh no. But like... <laughs> It was mostly just good, like, yeah. You know, um, so yeah, I guess that's how my 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 view on it changes. Is literally like including myself in it in a more direct way, and then allow allowing myself to, because I think when you're an ally to a movement, you can um, promote the work of people within that movement, but you generally don't try to like shape it or direct it or whatever, you know. And allowing myself to feel comfortable having a say is really interesting and still something that I like. I still don't totally know. And it, it helps that at the end of the day, I'm like, well, I have a say about me, right? And my perspective. I'm really not trying to... And that actually, that's where it comes with intersectionality in a good way, right? It's like, because I can't, I can't speak to the experiences of most women. I can speak to my experience, you know, um, which is as a white trans woman, which is a specific set of things, you know? Well, as we've been discussing throughout this, you are so, so busy. <laughs> You're doing so much. Um, just out of curiosity, because we, we like to ask this, is there anything that you do to kind of balance those things out, like self-care-wise? How do you make sure that it's not too much? Mm. Well, my idea of relaxing is doing projects. So mostly I try to do projects that don't make any money is one of the main <laughs> ways I do it. Uh-huh. Or like, I don't know, like right now I'm like trying to help my friend who's a single mom like make their watering system in their garden work so that they don't have to work as much and the gardening thing just goes. And it activates all the parts of my brain I like where I'm like puzzles and like plumbing. Yeah. I can't believe there's a part of my brain that loves plumbing, but I lived in an off-grid cabin for a long time. So I, you know... <laughs> I like doing things I'm vaguely good at. And so in terms of raw self-care, I kind of got to get drag kicking and screaming into it. I like hiking. I like, <laughs> you know, my, my truck is built out into a camper. Uh, my dog is very needy uh, because he's a puppy. And so I got to go on walks with him a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I, I actually honestly need to get better at self-care. Um, I have too many plates spinning. Uh, but sometimes the thing that seems fun is setting up new plates to spin. So um, maybe my idea of self-care is, is is finishing projects, right? Because then they're done and then you don't have to uh. think about them anymore. Um, and then the other thing I did, 
is I, I require all new hobbies to be physical instead of on the computer because everything I do for money is on a computer. Um, Fair. So all hobbies, woodworking, gardening, anything like that. That is a good tip. That's, That's a good, good one. one. I like it. You unplug. Mm-hmm. Yes, we know you need to go on and move on to the bigger and better projects and the 10,000 plates you've got going on. <laughs> but where can our listeners find you? Well, first of all, this is not a, this is a bigger and better. I, I am so excited <laughs> that you all have me on this show. I'm like, I really think it's cool that what you all do. But where can people find me? You can find me on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy. You can find me on Instagram at Margaret Killjoy. Instagram is like mostly me posting pictures of my dog or like instruments I make, whereas Twitter is me pretending like I would never fall into arguing about discourse on the internet. No, sir, <laughs> not me. And mm-hmm. you can pre-order my book from AK Press. If you pre-order it before September 20th, you'll get an art print uh, that is done by my friend, uh, same person who did the cover art, and you can order that from AK Press or a number of participating bookstores, including cooperatively run bookstores like Firestorm Books in Asheville or Red Emma's Books in Baltimore. Because I think cooperatives are cool. Workers, worker cooperatives are awesome. And you can find me on whatever you listen to this podcast with. You can find me at Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. And you can go back in time and look up the Jane Collective episode in order to listen to Samantha as well. And you can listen to Live Like the World is Dying, which is also on your podcast app. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. It was such a delight. Please come back because there's so many things you're saying. I was like, oh, resonating with me. You're also my best friend as well. Yay. (laughs) This is awesome. I feel like we had three other subjects that we need to tackle. I know. I was like, I want to talk about this, but I I can't talk about The Hobbit right now. Okay. Oh, but but we should sometime. I would love to. Also preparedness. That would be great. Okay. Um, Yes. Well, until that date, thank you so much for joining us. Come back anytime. Uh, Listeners, if you would like to contact us, you can. Our email is stuffydmomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've never told you is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, 
LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 